So before uh, being pastor here at Marquette, uh, Pam and I, our ministry was in Kingsford, and uh, we lived in Kingsford. We bought a house uh, just north of Iron Mountain out in the country. It was a small house that had been uh, remodeled on a little bit of acreage, um, but after inspecting the single detached garage a little bit more clearly, uh, that was one part of the property that had not been remodeled. And so as you went into this uh, older garage and threw on the light switch and the lights came on and you looked at the different outlets, as I looked up in the rafters, I noticed that beautiful 14th century electrical plumbing wiring, knob and tube wiring. These are bare copper lines going around little ceramic holders and, uh, you know, the type of stuff you wouldn't want to touch, type of stuff you wouldn't want to uh, put paper against. Tough, in my mind, it's probably much safer than, than, than it looked to me, but, you know, wires that were frayed and, and, and rusted, and I could just imagine, you know, throwing the lights on and sparking and arcing taking place and, and the danger and the, uh, the difficulty of having that, it needed to be rewired. Well, as we dive into God's word today, God looks at our sin in our lives, and he says of us as his people, they need to be rewired. And in fact, we hear a call in God's word to be rewired by Christ, that we might be upgraded from the ways of this world. Paul would say, and you've heard this verse from Romans 12, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve God's will, his good and pleasing and perfect will. And so that rewiring language of being transformed and renewed in the mind is a call that God places into our lives. And so as I said, our, our, our sinful nature, you might say, is like bad wiring. Or if you prefer something a little bit more up to date, maybe you might use the computer illustration and you could say that because of our sinful nature, our coding has been corrupted. There's an, there's an error in our coding, and, and it causes us to, to crash into sin at the most unexpected times. Or you might say that we have a virus that has infected our operating system, and we didn't get this virus by clicking on some suspicious email, as some of us have done, right? But no, instead we got it by picking a suspicious piece of fruit from the garden the Lord told Adam and Eve not to touch. And so we have this sinful wiring, this sinful condition working against us. The Apostle Paul says that because of that, it's difficult for him to function as a disciple of God. In fact, in Romans 7, Paul is beside himself. He says, I do not understand what I do. Now, you'd think Paul, the great apostle, the great church planner, would have a pretty good theological sense of why things happen in his life. But he says, I do not understand what I do. I want to do good, but what I hate that's what I do. And for what I desire to do good, I, I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body which is subject to death? Paul's kind of, he's, he's just at his wit's end. He can't believe 
the friction, the conflict, the fighting that takes place within his own soul. Well, Paul ultimately concludes that it's Jesus who will rescue him. It is Jesus who will be his savior. And he realizes, too, that not only is Christ come to be our Savior, but that Jesus wants to do something more than just rescuing us from sin and death and taking us to heaven, but he wants to rewire us so that we speak and act and think a little bit more like him each and every day. And so this process of being rewired is a, it's a lifelong process. It's not an instantaneous thing. It's a lifelong process that the Bible calls sanctification, which is being made holy, being made into the likeness of Christ. And so there's this battlefield that's very obvious inside each and every one of us. In one hand, we have this old wiring, our sinful nature, and on the other hand, there's this new wiring, the Christ-likeness inside of us. And they're warring against each other. In fact, the old church reformer Martin Luther said, this warring takes place because we are both saints and sinners at the very same time. And so if we are both have this old wiring, this new wiring, this sinfulness, this saintliness fighting against each other, the question then begs, which one is going to win out? And more importantly, during the high-stakes times in our lives, when we are tempted, which nature prevails? And that's a really good question for us to ask ourselves. And I suspect that your experience with temptation is very similar to my experience with it. So uh, I'll put forth how I believe most of us deal with temptation. So on the one hand... There are times in our life where Satan tempts us with something that looks enticing. And we might be tempted and close to taking the bait to fall into sin, but we pause. I think the Holy Spirit causes us to pause and reflect. And we say something like this. It might not be the exact phrase you hear in your head, but maybe you hear something like this. You know, if I do this, God's not going to be happy with me. Or... I don't think Jesus would be proud with this decision. Or maybe it's something more like, I'm a child of God. That's not how I'm to live. Or maybe you've just said, you know what, I was raised better than that. I know better. And, and, and somehow, by God's grace, you walk away from the temptation and you give praise to God that, thank you for giving me a strength that maybe you didn't even think you had. That's one experience with temptation, a very positive experience. But I think if we're truly and completely honest with each other, we also recognize that there's another experience that we, we encounter as well. That there are times when we face temptation in our lives, and our sinful nature takes over, and we hear another voice in our head that says, you know, I know this isn't right, but I don't care. I want to do it anyway. Or maybe we, 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 we hear the old wiring put forth a thought that says, you know, this will bring you satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness. And so we give in to the old wiring. We give in to our sinful nature and we find ourselves in sin. And the old wiring takes over. 
and it actually takes us under. I think that's the experience most people have. And so the question that still lingers out there today is, how do we get from a place where that old way of living is less and less the experience and that new way of living in Christ becomes more our default way of dealing with temptations? And I guess I'd love to just stand here today and say, if you do these three things, you will conquer sin in your life. But I'll be honest with you. I don't have three things to tell you to do to fix sin in your life. Because that would be a lie. Because the reality is, is we can't fix sin in our life because if we could conquer sin by ourselves... We wouldn't need Jesus. We do need Jesus. We need Jesus because Jesus Christ is the only one strong enough to conquer the sin of the world, and he comes down to our planet to do that. Jesus goes to the cross to to take our, our jealousy, our insecurity, our selfishness, our sin, and to nail it there for us. Jesus conquers our sin by living the perfect life and resisting a life of sin in his existence. Jesus conquers our sin as we see him today in Matthew's gospel in the wilderness, resisting the temptations that Satan places before him. And Jesus conquers our sin by resisting death. Oh, he allowed himself to die, but his resurrection is a great example that he resisted death. Death would not have the final word over him. And so this idea that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and the devil now means that those victories have been applied to us and that we have victory over sin, death, and the devil. That's why the Bible says that because Jesus mastered sin, that we shall not be slaves over sin any longer. And so we don't defeat sin in our life by trying harder or trying to be better. No, the way that sin is marginalized in our life is by living closer to Jesus, the one who has mastery over it. And as we live closer to him, we grow into his likeness. As we grow into his likeness, we become sanctified. And we start to think and speak and act more and more like our Savior. Oh, we'll keep falling back. It's never a a perfect process until the day we meet our Savior in heaven. And we'll fall back on our sinful nature more times than we even care to admit. But as we look at Matthew's gospel where Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, I know we're not perfect like Jesus, but there could be some attention to detail here to see how Jesus deals with those temptations and some observations that maybe help us in our journey here when we're facing temptations as well. So with our remaining time, let me just share a couple of observations I see in Jesus' experience when he was tempted. The first thing that I notice is that the devil tempted Jesus with lots of food. He said, turn these stones into bread. The devil tempted Jesus with safety and security. He said, throw yourself down and, and you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Satan tempted him with wealth and power. All this I will give to you. 
if you merely just bow down and worship me. And so the best tools that Satan had against Jesus, he didn't pull any punches, right? The best things he could use to try to beat Jesus is the temptation of comfort, security, power, and wealth. And Jesus rejected all of those. But it stands to reason that if Satan's going to tempt Jesus with comfort, security, and power and wealth, that he still uses those same techniques against us also. And if you think about it, Satan does get in our head and so often tell us that our greatest good needs to be our comfort, that our greatest goal is our safety or security, that the most important thing to accomplish in life is either power or wealth. And you see, these are things of the world, and God has such greater things for his people than just these things. These things ultimately fade away. And so often people get sucked into the temptations of what Satan has to offer us. And these things of comfort, security, wealth, and power can become idols in our lives. And so that's the first thing I observe is just the, the what of the temptations that Jesus faced are very similar to the what's we face today as well. Second thing I noticed is notice the condition of Jesus when he is tempted. Verse 2 of Matthew says this, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, I think it's interesting to notice that Jesus was hungry because we know what it's like to be hungry. In fact, have you ever gone to the grocery store after you have not ate for 10 or 12 hours? Anybody ever tried this sociological experiment? Not the best idea, right? You're going down the junk food aisle and everything's getting thrown into the cart. You get up to the, you know, the top there and you got your, your list and it's uh, $398 of groceries just because you're so hungry, right? And it's uh, $298 of its junk food. No, we've learned that it makes sense to maybe have a bite to eat before you go to the grocery store and you won't binge buy things. Because when we're hungry, maybe you might say we don't always make the best decisions. In fact... Our society has come up with a word called hangry, right? This idea that uh, people get bad-tempered and irritable when they are hungry. Well, Jesus wasn't hangry, but Jesus was hungry. And it suggests to us, or at least Satan thought, he might be more vulnerable to this temptation being hungry. And so, of course, Satan says, well, why don't I tempt him with food? I think there's something for us to catch in there because it's worth paying attention to the areas in our lives where we find ourselves hungry. If there's an area in your life where you say, I just am not fulfilled in this aspect, or there's some part of, of something where I say, I'm just not filled up here, those are oftentimes the places that Satan comes to us and says, so you're hungry. I can satisfy your hungry. I can fill your need. I can make you full. You see, Satan knows the vulnerabilities of God's people. And if we're not aware of those different areas in our lives where we have hunger, there are times where we might be more prone to step into something that is not God's way of filling us up. 
I can't tell you how many times in marriage counseling over my years in ministry where an extramarital affair started because a wife was hungry for attention and conversation. And she says, it just started because this other guy listened to me. My husband doesn't listen to me. Or how many times a, a husband who was hungry for affection and validation found that in another person. Now, I'm not trying to excuse this sin, but I'm trying to explain that when we have hunger in our life, Satan is also going to acknowledge that too. And so we need to be aware of that. We need to pray to God that he would, would fill us, that he would fortify us, that he would hedge and defend us from the tempters uh, seeking to uh, assault us during these times. The final observation that I notice is just how Jesus responds to Satan in all of these temptations. He uses the powerful word of God. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16 in our earlier reading. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Also in our earlier reading, Deuteronomy 6.13. Jesus responds with words that are powerful because they are God's very voice from Scripture. And Jesus doesn't pull out his pocket version of the New Testament from the Gideons that he received just the day before. Although we thank the Gideons for that great ministry and the way that the word of God gets to so many people through that. Jesus doesn't crack open his iPhone and open the Bible app and search temptation quick verses to respond with. Although we do thank the software providers that we do have God's word even in our phones, right? Jesus responds from memory, the words of his father. Jesus has the words of his father in his head. Jesus has his own divine words in his heart. It is part of the fabric of who Jesus is. And the more that we are immersed in God's word, when temptation comes our way, the more we are resourced with Scripture, the more Holy Spirit can work in our lives and just recall these things when temptation comes our way, and the more we can combat the lies of Satan, the more we can be rewired by Christ, the more we can see the good and pleasing will of the Father in heaven. Amen. Now may this peace of our God, which surpasses all of our understanding, keep our hearts and minds in Christ as we pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit. And Lord, even though our wiring is corrupted, we thank you that daily, through your word, through fellowship, through coming to praise your name and receive your sacrament, we are being built up to be more and more like you. Father God, forgive us when we fail and go back our old ways. And empower us to stand in your love, to, to find ourselves connected to your word and to be closer and closer to you every day, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.